All right, well, we are in the book of Mark, and we are getting rather close to finishing up the book of Mark. We're in chapter 14, and Mark really doesn't talk at all about any of Jesus' early life. Uh, Matthew and Luke, they talk a little bit about Jesus' birth, and Luke has that short little section where he's talking about Jesus in the temple when he was 12 years old. Uh, But that's really all that we have about Jesus' early life. And the first three decades of Jesus' life, his first 30 years, Mark doesn't mention at all. He doesn't give a a second's thought to any of that information. Uh, None of that information makes its way into Mark's gospel. And he just kind of focuses on some highlights of Jesus' three-year ministry from the time that he's 30 to 33, from chapters 1 to 10, so the first two-thirds of his gospel, but the last third, chapter 11 to 16, he's really zooming in quite a bit and focusing on the final week of Jesus. So what are some of the things that we've seen already that Mark has pointed out and highlighted in the final week of that Christ had before going to the cross? You guys recall any of the stuff we've looked at so far? In this final week of Christ? He focuses on the fact that the religious leaders wanted him dead. Absolutely. They did want him dead. Did they want to kill him right then? Do you remember? Not in front of the people. Yeah, they were a little bit fearful of the people, right? In 14.2 it tells us that. Mark 14.2 says that they were saying not... Or, I guess I should read note one first, right? It says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and how to kill him. Uh, this isn't something new. Even since chapter 3, they've been wanting to kill Jesus. But now they're seeking, okay, well, how do we go and, and do it stealthily? And verse 2 says that they were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So they were afraid that all these the thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people who were coming to the Passover feast, that they would side with Jesus and there would be a, a riot that would ensue if they tried to kill Jesus at that point in time. What else do you guys recall from the final week of Christ? There's preparation for what's coming. One with the lady in Bethany who anointed mm-hmm. him with the oil. Yeah. And then um, with the Passover, he's presenting to them an observation, um, not ritual, but an observation for, for later. Yes. he's crucified to remember him every year. Good. Yeah, so on that, that first day of Passion Week, the, the day when he comes in, the triumphal entry, uh, he also is anointed that same evening by Mary, right? She pours out all this expensive perfume and uh, washes his feet with her hair and kisses his feet. And then yeah, later on, the night of the Passover, he initiates the, uh, the Lord's Supper, right? This observation that we're to remember even thousands of years later. And so last week, we took this little detour and we were talking about the Lord's Supper this, and the, the theological understandings of the Lord's Supper, different views of the Lord's Supper. What do you guys remember about uh, these different views that we consider, different ways that people understand what we're doing when we're remembering the Lord's Supper. Some say literal 
Yeah. I can't remember the name for it. Yeah, you don't have to remember all the fancy theological terminology. Yes, transubstantiation. And yeah, that view holds that the elements, the, the physical bread and wine, change into the actual body and blood of Jesus. That's not something that we hold to, not something we believe, but that's one popular view out there, right? That is one of the most popular views, actually. Consubstantiation. Yes. And what is consubstantiation? I don't understand it, so yeah, I can't explain me it. Me neither. <laughs> yeah, consubstantiation says that Jesus is in, with, and under the elements. That's the terminology that they like to use. So they don't um, say that the elements actually change into Jesus, but he's there somehow, that he's physical, physically within those elements. Again, not a view that we hold to, but... Uh, another view that is floating and existing out there, right? And then the third view, anybody recall that one? Well, the first two, those are kind of like Catholicism, right? And then when we get to the third one, isn't that more Martin Luther? Yes. And Reformation? Yeah, good. Yeah, it's a Reformed view. Well, Martin Luther actually helped to consubstantiation, but um, yeah, John Calvin held to uh, the reformed view and that says that Jesus is still within the elements in some kind of spiritual way uh, the terminology that he uses is really and truly that Jesus is really and truly there though not physically that he is spiritually present within the elements um, again not a view that we hold to here we hold to the memorial view that the elements are representative of Jesus that they remind us of his life and death of his uh, incarnation and the, the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sin that he offered up. Um, they're just a reminder, right? A, a physical way for us to remember the gospel. Are there any thoughts or questions about any of that? I know that we got pretty deep last week and we did use a lot of the big theological terminology that isn't super important. You don't have to remember that. Just remember there are different views and we don't hold the first one. Well, I like the comment after the Lord's Supper, when he was there, they weren't eating him. Yes. So the idea that it really is him is just out and left you. Yeah, that, that wouldn't make sense if he's initiating that observation at that point in time when he's still there, right? They can't be physically partaking of his body. Good. All right. Well, let's jump into our study then. Uh, we're going to be in verses 32 through 52 today. So a little bit of review, backing up and reminding us where we're at. As they were wrapping up the Passover dinner, uh, Jesus then informed the disciples that they were about to scatter and abandon him. And they all objected right away. They said, no, not me. Uh, Lord, it's not, not I, right? And he said, no, well, everybody really is going to scatter at some point. And Peter particularly says, nope, I'm, I'm not going to leave you. I'll die before I leave you. And Jesus replied, no, you're, you're really going to abandon me. In fact, you're going to betray me three times. We'll be looking at this a little bit more closely in a few weeks, in a couple weeks, rather. Um, and then Peter, you yes, betray. what's that? You said betray. Betray? Deny. Deny. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so Peter at this point, he's thinking um, that he knows better than Jesus, which is really a pretty foolish thing. And he says, no, I'm, I'm not going to deny you. 
And Jesus says, no, you're, you're going to deny me. It's a, a promise. Um, and really, in, in Peter opening up his mouth like that, that's a denial in and of itself, isn't it? To think that he knows better than the all-knowing Most High. And um, he's denouncing Jesus as a, a prophet. He's denouncing Jesus as a, a truth speaker. And that's where we're picking up today in verse 32. Could I get somebody to read for us verses 32 through 36 of Mark 14? I will. All right, thanks. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. All right. Thank you. All right. So at this point, they have left the upper room, right? And they come to the Garden of Gethsemane, to a place named Gethsemane. And Gethsemane literally means olive press. So they come to this place where uh, they, they press olives. It's up on the Mount of Olives. Um, and it's most likely a, a private garden. And so people who lived in Jerusalem, they would have their residence within the city of Jerusalem. And then they would have their gardens on the, the outskirts of Jerusalem. And, this one's up on the Mount of Olives outside of town where there's room and space. And somebody who is rather wealthy to have such a, a large garden has allowed Jesus and his companions to stay there, at least 11, 12 of them, to stay and to sleep in this garden. Um, it has the ability to accommodate them. And we looked a little bit last week at Luke 21, 38, and there it says that during the day he would teach in the temple and at night he would go to the, uh, to the Mount of Olives. And that's where he would stay and he would sleep. And so that would be here at the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see that once again, Jesus takes along with him his inner circle. Uh, remind me, where else have we seen the, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John being taken along? And why is it that you think Jesus continues to... Uh, to set these guys apart from the rest of the crowd. The Mount of Transfiguration. All right, yeah, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus took the same three, right? Peter, James, and John, just like he does here. And he said, you three come with me. Everybody else stay back, right? You remember any other place? We looked at one more back in, what was that, chapter six or seven, maybe? And he raised the one girl from the dead. Yeah. Just her parents and then Peter, James, and John as well, right? Yeah, good. Yeah, it was chapter 5. It was Jairus' daughter, and he took Peter, James, and John. And so we have so far these three instances where Jesus is uh, focusing on these three. He's uh, pulling them aside, Peter, James, and John. Why is that, you think? We've talked about that a little bit in the past. What sets them apart? Uh, yeah, along with Andrew, right? Back in chapter 1, verses 20 to 24, I think, those four fishermen. 
he called them. Um, I think uh, another key point is the fact that they seem to be leaders. Uh, it, it's like, especially later, but even before Christ's death and resurrection, they took on a leadership role. Peter is always the one who's speaking up, right? Not always in the wisest way, but he's typically the one who's willing to open up his mouth and uh, say something on behalf of the group. And oftentimes it, the text will tell us, Peter said this and everybody else agreed, or everybody else said this along with him. And James and John, they were the, the sons of thunder, right? Uh, surely they didn't get that nickname in vain. And they were the ones who wanted to sit at Jesus' left and right hand in the kingdom. They wanted this power, this position. And uh, James is the first one who's going to be martyred. John is the last one who isn't martyred, the last living disciple. Um, John and Peter, they both contribute to the authorship of the New Testament. And so these guys are leaders within the church, right? Uh, Again, especially later, but even before Christ's death and resurrection, they are leaders within the church. And so I think Jesus wants to give them extra opportunity to, to learn and to observe so they can grow and um, become the leaders that they, they are meant to be. And here in this situation where he takes them with him deeper into the garden, he kind of leaves behind the other eight. Remember that Judas has already left. Jesus has told him, what you're going to do, go out and do quickly. So he has the 11, takes him into the garden, leaves the eight behind, like at the entrance of the garden, and goes even farther with these three, with his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And he tells them to, to come along and to, to pray with them. And as we get in and uh, dig into the text a little bit more, we're going to see they, they really failed at that. They didn't fulfill what... Jesus' purpose was for them to go in and to pray that they wouldn't be given into temptation. And so here I think that that's part of what Jesus is teaching them. He's teaching them how to, to fail. He's teaching them that they're not always going to be able to, to do what it is that they set out to do. Um, so they're being set out and set apart here uh, for this unique learning opportunity. We also see in this section that Jesus uh, is grieving, right? He's very transparent about his grief. We see that uh, several times in this passage. Um, he tells them, come and pray with me because my soul is deeply grieved. In verse 34, it says, even to the point of death, um, remain here and keep watch. And then he went on beyond them. Uh, we see several times that he is grieved, that he is, oh, back up in Verse 33, he's very distressed and troubled. So Jesus, uh, the, the great I am, right? He is here revealing that he is grieved, that he is troubled. Um, and people often point to this passage to highlight Jesus' humanity. And I think we do see Jesus' humanity in this text, but not necessarily just in the fact that he is grieved by something. Um, grief in and of itself isn't unique to humans, is it? No, right? Um, just this last week, we had one of our dogs die, and our other dog has been grieving over the, the loss of that dog. But even more importantly, um, remember back in Genesis 6, in Genesis 6-6, when 
God was looking out on humanity, out on all of his creation, he said that he was sorry, that he was sorry that he had made them, and he was grieved in his heart that he had created this race of sinful beings, and he destroyed them with the flood, right? And so grief in and of itself isn't unique to humanity, but the fact that uh, Jesus is um, looking for a, a way of escape, for a, a different opportunity that this cup might be taken away from him, I think that that is evidence of his humanity. Uh, remember, Luke 19.10 says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was his purpose for coming, right? And now he's here, he's in this moment. Um, this is why Christ came, and he is uh, in the presence of this mounting fear, this imminent death, and Jesus calling out to the Father for a, another option, just wondering if there's something else that, that might be done. Um, Tertullian, an early church father, he pointed out, he said that both his, both Jesus' soul and body were fully human. For some have wrongly asserted that either the flesh or the soul of Christ might be entirely different from ours. Um, that's not necessarily a, a heresy that we have to deal with often, but in the early church, people were wondering, okay, well, maybe Jesus wasn't human at all. Maybe he was just divine. Maybe at, at some point he became divine. Or maybe just part of Jesus was human, only in his flesh or only in his spirit. Uh, there were these different understandings that maybe his flesh was human and his spirit was divine. But this passage really points out for us that he was 100% human. He was truly human and truly divine. Um, married and, and brought together perfectly and beautifully. Um, while the text doesn't use the language that Jesus was fearful or scared or anxious or worried, uh, we kind of get a little bit of that feel, right? That he's looking forward to the cross and he doesn't want to go to the cross if it can be helped in any way. <clears throat> but uh, we do have to recognize that if Jesus was scared to whatever degree he was scared, he was scared sinlessly. Because there are all kinds of texts throughout Scripture that talk about uh, the, the sin of anxiety, right? The sin of fear and worry. Uh, hundreds of times we're told, don't worry, don't be fearful. Um, and Jesus is unable to sin. And 1 John 3, 5 says that in him there is no sin at all. And so we know that whatever fear he had, it couldn't have been a sinful fear. Um, Philippians 4 says to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication make your request known to God. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in the midst of this trial. So I think, yes, he was... Uh, I, I don't know if fear necessarily is the right word, but I, it, it works in my mind, I guess. But it was sinless fear because he was crying out to God with his fear. He wasn't being anxious and, and worrying about something that he didn't have control over. He was taking that to the Father and praying uh, to the Lord. Three times he took this request to the Lord. Um, we see that Jesus 
desire here, his will, is distinct from the Father's. However, it's not opposed to the Father's. I think that's really important, that they're not in opposition with each other. Jesus isn't crying out to God and saying, your plan is terrible, Uh, I want a different plan. Rather, he's saying, uh, if this cup can be taken away from me, then uh, I I trust that you have the strength and the power and the omnipotence to to do that. Um, But not my will, but your will be done. That's really important that in the end, he's willing to submit to the will of the Father and uh, come alongside of whatever it is that, that God has for him. Back in John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And we see that being displayed here, that he's willing to do whatever the Father has for him. Any thoughts or questions? (laughs) I know this isn't the easiest text to wrap our minds around, but it's there. It's in Scripture. Jesus knew what was coming. Yeah, he's warned them several times up to this point, right? Multiple times that he's going to be murdered, sacrificed. Yes. So he knew exactly what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know how you get out here in this year, but yeah. He's mm-hmm. unique. Amen. Jerry? Well, the very knowledge that he's going to be actually accepting the judgment of the entire history of man's sin on himself uh, is incomprehensible to us because it covered it's explicit that it covers not only his death and his blood but also our wounds that we deserved when he was brutally beaten. It was common for people to die just during the scourging, mm-hmm. and yet they inflicted all kinds of torture and pain on him. And they got they were good at doing that. And the crucifixion itself is, is a long, agonizing torture. It's odd that we are so adamant against torture of people who deserve it. Back in the 70s, it was guys in a drink holdup. They killed several people by making them drink lye. I don't know how you make people do stuff, but they, they subjected them to incredible agonies. And, and yet, when, 10 or 20 years later, when they finally were put to death for that crime, you know, it was supposed to be as painless as possible. It's, it's, it's a really strange kind of backwards, thing that we are. Yeah. Yeah, so like you said, Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into, and it was much more than just the physical, right? There was a, the emotional burden yeah, there as well. Yeah, of his best friends, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. <clears throat> well, perhaps you guys are familiar with the accompanying passage in Luke, which talks about the extent of the agony and 
the, the terror, the dread that Jesus was going through and how this uh, included him sweating drops like blood. Is that a familiar passage to you guys? Because it's a, a familiar passage around here, right? One thing that is very important that we keep in mind is that if Jesus did, in fact, bleed in the garden, it wasn't propitiatory. That means that it wasn't a, a, a payment for our sin. Uh, that's what that word means, a, a satisfactory payment. And this is a, a very important point because growing up in Utah, I heard this often, that when Jesus bled in the garden, he did so to cover our sins, to pay for our sins. Let me put the verse up there for you that's in question. Luke 22:44 says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So again, if Jesus bled in the garden, it wasn't to cover or to atone for our sins. <clears throat> and there are a few uh, issues with taking that position. One is that the text doesn't say that he actually bled in the garden. Perhaps he did, right? There is a, a medical condition where you're under so much stress and distress that you can't actually sweat uh, drops of blood. Your capillaries burst or something. I'm not sure of all the like scientific how it works, but that's a, a scientific uh, condition that he could have had, possibly. But that's not what the text says. Remember last week we were talking about uh, figures of speech when we were talking about the metonymies, right? And we were also talking about similes. And this here is a, a simile, that he sweat drops like blood. Um, so perhaps they were just, you know, sweating. He was sweating profusely, and the sweat was dropping off of him as if he were bleeding. So uh, we're not told that he literally sweat drops of blood. Secondly, if Jesus, in fact, atoned for our sins in the garden by sweating blood, you would think that we would have an abundance of information in the Bible about that, right? That if this is where Jesus atoned for sin, if this is where Jesus uh, paid it all, if this is where everything was finished, then we would have all kinds of information throughout the text. But we don't. We have one verse. This one verse in Luke twenty-two forty-four. Matthew doesn't mention it. Mark doesn't mention it. John doesn't mention it. Uh, the author of Hebrews, James, Jude, uh, Paul, they never mention it at all. But they will talk about the cross nonstop, right? You look in the New Testament and you're going to be hard-pressed to find a, a large section that doesn't speak about the cross and how Jesus paid for sin through his death on the cross. One of my favorite examples of this is Colossians 2.14, beautiful verse. that says that Jesus has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. Those certificates, that debt is completely taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's how he uh, took that sin, took that debt, and, and paid for it, because it was nailed to the cross. So the cross is central all throughout the New Testament. So not only does the text not actually say that Jesus bled in the garden, uh, we have a, a very skewed um, balance, I guess, in the text, in, in the Bible as a whole, about the focus that's given to the cross versus the focus that's given to the garden. But the most significant reason why 
Jesus could not have atoned for our sins in the garden is that the cross um, and the significance of the cross isn't simply in the fact that Jesus bled. Blood in and of itself is insignificant, but the blood is representative of the life that Jesus gave up. Back in Leviticus uh, 17, I think, it talks about how life is in the blood. Uh, It's representative of the blood, or of the blood is representative rather of life. And that's the penalty that we owe for our sin, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so Jesus just simply bleeding, that's not sufficient to cover the wage that we have, the wage of death that we owe for sinning against a holy God. He couldn't just, you know, cut his finger and atone for sin. That's not sufficient. Um, Jesus had to die. It was the... He had to lay down his life for the sheep, right? Not just to, to bleed, not just to have a little bit of grief and suffering and agony. He had to lay down his life for the sheep. Death is required as a payment for sin. Now, remind me again, who was it that Jesus took with him farther into the garden? Who were the... Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John, right? And James, he, he died rather early. He was the first apostle again to die in Acts 12. Uh, his life after Christ didn't go on too long. But I want to look at uh, what John has to say. And in the book of John, John is great to give us a purpose statement for why he is writing. So in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's saying, Everything that I've written to you, I've written so that you may believe and that you may have life in his name. But one thing that John never wrote about was Jesus bleeding in the garden. He didn't even write about Jesus really going deep into the garden. He didn't write about uh, the, any grief or pain or suffering that Jesus had. He didn't write about his agony in the garden. He didn't write about his three prayers. He didn't mention them at all. He didn't write about him taking the, the inner circle farther into the garden, about them falling asleep and, and failing to do all these things. John didn't write about any of that. But remember this purpose statement, the things that he wrote, he wrote so by believing in his name, we could have life. One thing, however, that John did write is he wrote about the cross, right? And in John 19, verse 30, he says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And he was talking about the the penalty that we owe for sin, right? Because that's, that's what's in view here. That's why Jesus went to the cross, to seek and to save the lost. So he went there to bear the guilt and the weight of sin, to pay our debt, Our wage, which is death, the wages of sin is death, right? That's why he went there and he said, you know what, that debt, it's finished. It's nailed to the cross. It is done. It's paid in full. To tell us that, it's it's over, right? That's what John was focusing on, not on him bleeding in the garden. What about Peter? I love this verse from Peter. I think this is the the best answer to that, um, that notion that perhaps Jesus paid for our sin in the garden. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ also died for sin once for all. He didn't bleed in the garden for our sin. He had to die for our sin. He had to give up his life for our sin because that's what we have to do for our sin. Our sin is costly. 
it's not just something that deserves a, a time out or a slap on the wrist. Our sin is against a holy God and it deserves an eternal death. So Jesus died for sin. Not just blood. He had to die for our sin once for all. The just Jesus for the unjust us. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Peter, who was there with him in the garden, he was farther along and uh, if anybody would have been uh, aware of the fact that Jesus bled in the garden and the significance of that, it would have been Peter. But he didn't mention that at all. He mentions Jesus' finished work on the cross. Any thoughts or questions on any of that? Yes, Sam. It just seems that it would kind of go against the whole point of everything that Mark's, or that Luke had said to that point where Jesus is sitting there. is like, okay, if there was any way possible that this cup could be taken away from me, um, and then he sweats a lot, and then God could have easily gone, okay, now the cross is unnecessary. Let's get on with our lives. And uh-huh. Wrap it up, pack it up, let's move. It, it just, it, it, it not only invalidates the cross, but it also makes it completely unnecessary, and it just is extra brutal for literally no benefit. Mm-hmm. It just, there's no point to it. Yeah, exactly. And question that I'll often ask when I'm presented with that scenario, that's why Jesus, or when Jesus atoned for our sins, I'll ask, okay, well, why did, why the cross then? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? And the answer is really not only insufficient, but it's kind of backwards and twisted that he was giving us an example of, um, that we are to follow. But if you follow that through to its logical conclusion, that would kind of result in some kind of suicide or laying down our life needlessly for no reason which yeah doesn't really doesn't follow doesn't make sense so we need to focus on the cross in our evangelism yes well the other uh, the other side of this that we didn't see then and we certainly don't see now is yes there was the physical aspect of Jesus going to be scourged Mm -hmm. and going to be crucified and that's terrifying enough but just like you read, he's paying for our sins. Yeah. He's, he's being that unblemished lamb that is going to take away our sins. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we see, we see sin and we recognize it around us. But, you know, God is spirit and we don't understand the depth of the depravity that's associated with that sin. Jesus does. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was the, the, the core of his, of his uh, asking that the cup be taken from him. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right on. It's, and it's not just for then. It's for from the time of the fall in the garden to today. Yeah, he was bearing and all sin of mankind. <coughs> Good. Is there any other... Um, religious system out there that believes that atonement was paid for. Not that I know of. All right, Jerry. Well, Second Peter 2, 3, 4, he also explicitly states hmm. himself for our sins in his body on the cross. Yep. He himself, it's, yeah, in the middle voice, it's something that he did. Um, 
neither. Yeah, he did it in his body on the cross. Again, with the emphasis being on his body, it's like uh, pointing out to that first century, it's going to deal with this, you know, proto-Gnostic heresy that says that, no, he didn't physically do it. No, he did it himself in his body on the tree, right? He paid for our sins. Good. The whole phrase, you know, Lamb of God, I mean, Lamb's first thing yes. was sweat, and secondly, they all died at every Passover, so bleeding without death is yeah. no account. That doesn't fulfill the picture that's meant to be presented. Good. All right. Well, let's move on here. Um, verses 37 to 42. Can I get somebody to read that for us, please? Mark 14, 37 to 42. Who's got that? I got it. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is in hand. All right. So we see here in just those few verses, three times Jesus asks his disciples to pray. He himself goes off to pray, and he returns to find them asleep. We see that in 37, 40, and 41. He comes back, and they were sleeping. Again, he comes back, and they're sleeping three times. And as you mentioned, this is uh, Jesus final hour, right? When he is going through all this pain and, and agony, um, Jesus wasn't just trying to teach his disciples. Uh, we mentioned that was perhaps one aspect of why he continued to take these three and set them apart somehow. But he was also looking for comfort from them. These were his closest friends, his best friends. And uh, when he needs them most, they're fast asleep. Consider, as as Jerry has brought up for us, why it is that Jesus was so grieved. It wasn't just because of the the physical aspect of what he was going to be going through. He wasn't only concerned about the physical pain, uh, but he was getting ready to bear the sins of the world. Uh, somebody remind me what Mark ten forty five says. We've been we haven't talked about it for a while, but it's supposed to be our, our key verse for this book. What does Mark 10.45 say? The suffering servant is hailing the kingdom of God. That he came to serve and not be served and to yeah. die as ransom for many. Good, yeah. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but or not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life was going to be a ransom for sin. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says that there is one God and one mediator uh, and between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who came to give his life as a ransom for many. That was the purpose of him coming, so that he could give his life as a ransom. This other verse up here, Galatians 3.13, says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, 
he, anybody who is hung on a tree is cursed. So Jesus actually became that curse. He became that ransom. He was bearing the whole weight of, as you mentioned, not just you know that generation, but the world. In time past to time future, he was bearing those sins upon himself um, as he was going to, to hang on the tree. Not to bleed in the garden, but to hang on the tree, right? Curses anybody who is hanged on a tree, Galatians 3.13 says. And then uh, Isaiah 53, this is uh, so closely tied with Isaiah 53 and that prophecy some 700 years before Jesus actually goes to the cross, talking about the grief that he's going to bear. In Isaiah 53.3, it says that he was despised and forsaken of men. He's called a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. Surely his, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. Uh, farther down in that passage, in verse 10, it says that uh, the Lord was pleased to crush him, to crush the son because he had become a ransom for sin, because he had become a curse. And so Jesus, knowing that this is what was waiting for him, knowing that these words had already been written in Isaiah, knowing that uh, he was about to, to bear the weight of sin, to become this ransom, to become this curse, to incur the wrath of God, uh, he, he cries out to God in, in agony, right? He's about to, to uh, drink that cup of wrath. Remember, a couple months ago, probably, we, talked, we went back and we read Jeremiah 25 about God's cup of wrath and how he had Jeremiah go around to the different nations and say, you need to drink this cup. This is uh, reminiscent of the wrath that God is going to pour out on you. Uh, Jesus now is saying, I'm going to drink that, that cup of wrath. And he's realizing the, the gravity of his reality that is just now hours away. That he's going to bear the sin of the world. And uh, this is a, a, a bigger weight, again, than just the, the physical death that he's about to suffer, but it's bearing that emotional weight and the wrath of God. In Luke, Luke goes a little bit farther in, in telling us why his disciples were sleeping, why they had abandoned him and, and failed to be there for his friend. Luke says that they were sleeping from sorrow in Luke twenty-two forty-five. Uh, so not out of apathy or carelessness, but they were asleep because of sorrow, which I think gives a little bit more insight. Uh, surely you guys know what it is to, to not be able to sleep because of grief, because of tragedy. You're just so weighed down, you can't even go to sleep. Uh, in the, the same way, at times, there are times when you're just so grieved and so sorrowful that you can't do anything to get rid of that grief except for just go to sleep. And I think perhaps that's what the disciples were going through, knowing that Jesus, their their friend, Jesus, their Lord, he was about to go through something. He was asking them for help. And uh, Luke says that they were sleeping because of sorrow. He, he says, even in this passage, that the, the flesh is willing, but the spirit, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? They're just unable to, to stay awake and to pray along with Christ. But <clears throat> Jesus wasn't left without relief. Luke also tells us in his gospel that an angel showed up and appeared and he offered relief to, to Jesus to help him to uh, have the, the strength to continue and to, to overcome, which is pretty cool. Just that little mention that Luke has that Mark doesn't include here. 
this angel comes and ministers to Christ. Uh, any other thoughts or questions before we jump into Jesus being betrayed? All right. I'll go ahead and read 43 to 52 real quick. It says, Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid their hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut, his, cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. All right, so looking at 43 again, it says, Immediately he was still speaking with Judas, one of the twelve. As he, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd of swords with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Well, John goes on from here and he adds to this text a little bit. In John 18, verses 2 and 3, says that now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with the disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus was familiar with this place, with the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, Luke talked about how he would go there at night. This was a common place. And so Judas went there to find Jesus. And he was accompanied by a cohort of soldiers, which was upwards of 600 soldiers in a cohort. Uh, and they were carrying lanterns, torches, swords, and clubs. And added to this Roman cohort, cohort if we put together all the Gospels, uh, we see that there were chief priests and elders and Pharisees uh, with temple officers. So all these people coming together to arrest Jesus. Why do you suppose they had so many people and they thought it necessary to bring such a, a large crowd uh, to a large show of force? Why do you think they thought that was necessary? Because they were afraid of the Jews. Yeah, they were afraid of the people, right? Yeah, just like we looked at at the beginning, back in 14.2, that, yeah, it was Passover, and, and they wanted him dead, but they didn't want to do this during Passover because there were tens of thousands of people who were there, and many of them were followers of Christ. And they thought, surely there's going to be a riot that's going to raise up if we do this at this time, but that's how things ended up happening. And so they had the, the knowledge from, the information from Judas, okay, he's up there, and we better take some reinforcements. And so some people estimate that upwards of a thousand people could have been there to arrest Christ, right? Who never hurt anybody, never did anything sinful. And yet he had hundreds of people there with clubs and swords to take him into custody. <clears throat> In uh, 
Oh, that, that passage there in John 18. Is anybody there in John 18 able to read for us 4 through 9? Thanks, Andy. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of these whom you have given me, I lost not one. All right. <clears throat> That's an awesome passage. Uh, and notice that in your Bible, he is in italics, or at least it should be in italics because it's not there in the original. So he says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus. And he says, I am. Right? And the response is, they all fall down to the ground. These uh, hundreds of people just fall to the ground at a word, right? Ego a me, I am. Jesus, using this name of God, right? The, the tetragrammaton, this identifying uh, phrase for God alone. He says, I am. I'm, I'm the one. I'm the one who's without beginning, without end. I'm the one who uh, has a satiety. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm... I don't have any counselors. I am, right? And they fall down to the ground. That's pretty amazing. Uh, carrying on in back in Mark, Mark 14. So that would have taken place right there between 43 and 44. Uh, in 44, it says, Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away underground. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and then he kissed him. Um, again, kind of piecing together the, the different Gospels. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, the same one we looked at before, uh, it says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Uh, so he's asking him and, and kind of pointing out the fact that what he's doing is kind of backwards, but he still calls him Judas, right? Look at this quote from Dionysius of Alexandria. He says, How magnificent is the endurance of evil by the Lord, who even kissed his own traitor, and then spoke words even softer than a kiss. For he said, for he did not say, O you abominable one, or traitor, is this what you do in return for great kindness? He simply says, Judas using his first name. This is the voice of one commiserating with another or who wished another to come back to him, not the voice of anger. And then if we look in Matthew 26:50, we see there that he even calls him friend. So he's very soft and, and gentle and even loving toward Judas, even in the midst of Judas betraying him with a kiss. Jesus is still showing his, uh, his compassion for him. And hopefully you've already noticed the coherence and the, the harmony of the Gospels, how all the Gospels kind of work together, agreeing with each other, even adding details to the story without contradiction. Um, but we'll see that here even more clearly. We see all, the, all four of the Gospels there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In 46 through 47 of Mark, where I'm not at right now, um, 
it's talking about somebody who is standing there. So Mark 14, 46 says that they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave on the, of the high priest and cut off his ear. In Matthew 26, 51, uh, it goes on to talk about how these were one of the ones who were with, who were with Jesus. So one of the 11 was the one who cut off his ear. And John 18.10, somebody have that ready to go? Yeah. All right, what's that say? Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. All right, so John even adds to that story. Matthew says, no, it was one who was with Jesus. John adds to it and says, no, it wasn't just one who was with Jesus. We all know it was Peter, right? <laughs> and Peter's the, the one who's uh, ready to go. Uh, he takes out a sword, and surely he wasn't trying to cut off his right ear, right? I'm sure he was trying to kill him. And he was a, a fisherman, not a swordsman, and so he missed. And then Luke goes on to add to the story even further. Somebody have Luke 22:51. Not yet. All right, I have Luke 22:51. It says, "But Jesus answered and said, "Stop! No more of this." And he touched his ear and healed him. So we have a little bit of information from each of the four gospel writers. Uh, apparently it was Jesus who cut off the ear of uh, Caiaphas' man, Malchus. And Jesus, again, in his loving compassion, healed the man in the midst of him being betrayed, having all this grief and agony being uh, weighing him down. And he kisses Judas, he loves on Judas, he heals this man and carries on being ready to, to be killed. It's just incredible. Uh, Matthew again goes on and talks about how he rebuked Peter for this. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once put at my disposal more than 12,000 legions of angels or uh, 72,000 angels, just as there are 600 in a, a cohort, there are 6,000 in the legion. And Jesus says, I, I could get 72,000 angels to come here, Peter. You think I need you? Uh, back in, uh, oh, what is it, Second Kings 19, we read about how one angel slaughtered and killed 185,000 Assyrians. And Jesus says, I could have 72,000 of those angels here in, in an instant. Peter, I don't need you. Put your sword away. That's not what we're about. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. He told them to, to knock it off. And so, just kind of thinking for a second, what do you think Peter was thinking at this moment when he drew out his sword? What was going through his mind? But his promise Yeah, he was already told he was going to betray, or uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Not betray. Uh, deny. deny Jesus. Thank you. Uh, keep doing that, mixing up Judas and Peter. Yeah, he was told he was going to deny Jesus, and he said, no, I'm not. And so I think he's looking to prove himself here a little bit, right? Plus, remember, he had just witnessed Jesus saying, I am, and everybody else falling down. And so, in my mind, he's kind of like uh, you know, those popular movie scenes where some kids like stand behind dad and he's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what are you going to do, right? But then when, when dad's not there or his best friend's not there, some bigger friend, uh, he's a lot more quiet, right? And so Peter, having just seen Jesus knock everybody down with a word, I think he gets a little bit hyped up and he says, no, I'm not going to deny Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to kill this guy. And Jesus rebukes him and everything just kind of falls apart for Peter at that point, doesn't it? Yes, Andy. 
Well, it, you know, it's kind of it's kind of funny, but it was a serious situation. I mean, Peter was Peter acted before he thought often regularly. Yes, <laughs> and it's consistent with his with his temperament, you know. Uh -huh. And that's that's why I see a lot of Peter in myself. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's not a trait that we should seek to apply to our own lives, right? Right. Well, in spite of everything Jesus has been telling them, still their foundational thought of their lives that the Messiah was coming to to conquer, and mm -hmm. yeah, seeing seeing them to fall down at His word. Yeah, maybe He thought this is it. Think, this is it. This is where it's all it's all starting now. Yeah. Crazy stuff. All right, let's wrap up real quick. In 48 and 49, that's where Jesus says, what, what are you guys even doing? I was with you every day in the temple. You guys could have seized me at any point. So he's pointing out their, their shady practice, pointing out their hypocrisy, uh, letting them know that the way that they're going about this isn't okay. And as we get into the following weeks, we'll see that their trials of Jesus, these kangaroo courts, are just absolutely ridiculous. They don't go about this the right way at all. <clears throat> And then in 50, uh, I need to get back to Mark again. Uh, verse 50 is a, a truly sad verse where it says that they all left him and fled. That kind of summarizes you know, this whole experience. Everybody just dipped out on Jesus. They were gone, right? Jesus was all on his own, again, bearing the weight of the sin of the world, and everybody left him. Um, this is what Jesus was telling them to, to pray against, to pray against the this temptation, and yet they still left him. He was there alone to face his hour of grief by himself. And in 51 and 52, these two verses about this dude who was wearing a sheet uh, and nothing but a sheet, and they went to grab him, and he barely escaped, and they just got the sheet, and he ran off naked, right? That's uh, kind of a weird random verse. We don't really have a lot of information about this dude. A lot of people want to speculate that maybe it was John Mark and, and Maybe it was, but we don't have much reason to believe that. But what we do see is that this guy and his actions are reflective and, and reminiscent of everybody else who just dipped out on Jesus and left Jesus, right? Just like all the other 11 disciples, or 12 disciples really, left Jesus in one regard or another. This man left running off naked, and it was just a, another picture of how Jesus was alone, the shame and the guilt that everybody else had as they were leaving Jesus. And I'll wrap up with this quote by Ephraim the Syrian. He says that he therefore washed his feet. That is, Jesus washed the feet of uh, Judas, those very feet by means of which he had arisen and gone to Jesus' slayers. Jesus kissed the mouth of him who by means of it gave the signal for death to those who apprehended him. He reached out and gave bread into the hand that reached out and took his price and sold him into slaughter. Again, we see this picture of Jesus as the, the suffering servant. Jesus is the one who's willing to, to love and to lay down his life for, for those who he came to save, right? He came to seek and to save the lost. All right, we're over time. I'll pray and we'll fellowship later.